0: Welcome back to behind our door. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Julie. How are you?
1: Very good. Really looking forward to our conversation today.
0: Me too. We have our brothers and sisters in blue today. Um, I'm very excited to introduce Lieutenant Jonathan Larson and Detective Elizabeth Reyes from the Los Angeles Police Department. Thank you guys for being here.
2: Of course thank you for the invitation
3: thank you very much we uh, look forward to having a conversation about mental health and law enforcement and what we can do to make awareness to what we do out here in the los angeles area
0: yeah i'm super excited because um i know that chicago has gone and and looked at your program and we have implemented some things that you guys are doing out there um but i truly feel like you're ahead of the game and i feel like a lot of people don't know what you're doing so what is like here in chicago we call it crisis intervention team or crisis intervention training so what do you refer to it as
2: well here in los angeles we we basically have adopted the cit model however we call it the mental health intervention training and it basically is the same didactics as cit um it was adopted uh the memphis model we follow the same thing um i know uh, we talked about Nami earlier before uh, the podcast, and we partner with Nami. We partner with the Autism Society of LA, and that is all incorporated in our forty hour mental health intervention training. And basically, it's a training uh, to talk about stigma. We break down the different types of mental illnesses, the most commonly uh, the most common mental illnesses that law enforcement will encounter in the field. and, we try to educate our officers on crisis communication, the best the best ways that we can uh, communicate with somebody in crisis. And a lot of the time we talk about our personal, our personal experiences with the officers to kind of help normalize those conversations and talk about the fact that it's not really um, it's not only about educating the community and educating ourselves as police officers but it's also about us. And we talk about like the officer wellness type of, um, we have that conversation uh, in the class too and officer wellness uh, part is in the course as well. Uh, So everything from mental illness, stigma, um, autism society coming in to kind of talk to us about the different developmental and intellectual disabilities that officers need to be Um, looking for to kind of communicate uh, better with those individuals and then of course our NAMI partners are a great great, uh, part of the training and we look forward to uh, our NAMI speakers, the families that come in and talk to us about their experiences uh, with their loved ones and also the people with lived experience talking to us about their encounters with law enforcement, what was great about them or what was not so great. And so it's a great opportunity for our officers to kind of learn um, from people that are actually living through um, a mental illness or have had numerous law enforcement contacts. And so I think that's probably the highlight of our week is NAMI.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. When we were doing the training, I think that was the part that most impacted police officers when they were learning. And the response that we have gotten, and I haven't trained in many years, but the response that we had gotten at the time was that, gosh, I wish I got this earlier in my career.
2: Yes. And we get that same response, right? We do.
3: Absolutely. I was fortunate here because I never got that training in my career. And when I came to take over as the officer in charge of this unit, that was my first order of business is I wanted to go through that training. And I wished having almost 20 years on, I wished that year one or two, I would have gone through that training because it's so key and critical just to know and understand and to see what some of these different illnesses or different conditions and just how we can better prepare ourselves to encounter those individuals.
1: Yeah. It's, it's just such a terrific program. I'm the lay person here. Who's not a police officer, but on the, on the NAMI side at time, you know, in years. And, um, I just know from families, the feedback has is always great if they have someone in one of these police departments that is CIT trained. Um, is it mandatory that everyone has this training or do they have a choice?
2: So MHI is uh, mandatory for patrol personnel. Um, however, you officers are also can also volunteer to take the training. But um, it is something that here in California, Senate Bill 29 requires uh, field training officers to have some kind of crisis intervention uh, or mental health intervention training. So uh, MHIT satisfies that compliance with Senate Bill 29. And also uh, what it is is that uh, our recruit officers, uh, when they complete their six month academy, they are brought back as a class uh, to, as as an extension of their academy time, they're required to come and uh, take m And so your officers with like 11 months, um, with 11 months field experience, they come back as a class and then they're able, they're able to take MHIT as well. So we're getting the officers young in their career to teach them how to, you know, the best practices in dealing with someone with mental illness to kind of educate them and then what what's important what what I forgot to mention earlier is that some something that is new that we've incorporated in MH is virtual reality training and so on Fridays um, we put them through like what's called their final exam and those are some like sit sims some reality based scenario training right we use some um, volunteer actors from our local oh. from our local uh, acting school oh, wow. and they come in. And we have like life scenarios. We have like maybe a suicidal jumper. And then we have maybe a call involving somebody who is bipolar. And then we have another scenario with somebody who's experiencing schizophrenia. And so um, now that we have virtual reality training, we have the capacity to actually put officers in virtual reality instead of just talking about or imagining like a suicidal jumper on the top of a of a big hotel, now we're actually able to put that officer on a high rise in Hollywood, um looking down, you know oh, wow. looking down on Hollywood Boulevard and talking to somebody who you know who is was in crisis and who's thinking about suicide. And so that's that's really exciting because we we just started that in September. So it's part of an enhancing that M hit training,
1: yeah that's really something
0: real wow. life scenarios. I love that. It's, it's better yeah. than being in, you know, a building and just pretending the room is a living room or pretending you're on top of a building. Wow, that's pretty far. One different. thing
3: we are trying to do as a department is, you know, move forward with the training to make it more realistic. I mean, and that's one thing that the individuals that have the thought process in developing this is really helping us because we're bringing a lot of our our civilian individuals in, whether it's the mayor's office, whether it's. The county directors and running them through some of these scenarios, and they don't realize actually what is going on until they actually go into this scenario. And it's just life-changing experiences for them to see what you have to deal with on a, an officer or one of our civilian clinicians have to deal with on a daily basis. Just mind-boggling.
1: Wow, that's really
0: yeah, that's that's amazing. a really good. Um... That's a really good training for them because I definitely agree that's lacking in, in society in general is that you have people from mayor's offices or um, whatever governmental agencies that that don't really understand both perspectives of it, whether it's a law enforcement side or the consumer side. And there, there's a huge gap there because they're so quick to judge on on different things that transpire, but yet they don't know it because they've never been through it.
2: It was so interesting. Last week, we had somebody from the police commission participate in a demonstration um, with our virtual reality unit. And it was amazing to see them uh, put in a scenario because it's so immersive. You actually feel like you're you know, you're really there. And I think it turned into a shooting situation. And you could tell like <laughs> the person didn't know how to react. And I thought, wow, what a valuable experience. This yeah, what is incredible we, training. Right? Because mm-hmm. these are the same individuals who, you know, they're, and, and rightfully so, uh, looking at our officer-involved shootings and things like that. And so it it was just really, it was just a really interesting uh, experience for me to see that individual going through it. And I was so, I was so thankful, I was like, wow, this is great that they're able to come and actually participate and be a part of it.
0: Yeah, I, I like that you're doing that because it bridges the gap. I feel like there's been this blockade between law enforcement and, and consumers and their families. And you can attest to this, Nancy, yeah. you know, um, so
1: many times there's so many examples.
0: You know, people that. people are afraid to call the police because they're afraid of what they see on TV or what social media is putting out there. And in reality, we I have tried to educate people here through NAMI and otherwise stating that it's not like that anymore. There, there is a change. There's a mass change going on nationwide. And so maybe you can speak to that on what does it look like from, let's say I'm a parent and my kid is out of control and I don't know what to do. And I pick up the phone and I want to call 911. What, what should I do?
3: I'll start with that if you're good. So, you know, when that looks like, I mean, we're, we're, our model is changing a lot right now. So you're going to see a lot of changing where, you know, there's a big push right now to have like unarmed crisis response teams coming out. Right. Mm So specific, specific criteria that if they were to call 911 and my child is just being disorderly, my child needs some help where they're not, not violent, not actually danger to themselves. Well, that call would be referred to probably one of our, those unarmed crisis response teams and they would never have any contact probably with a sworn law enforcement officer at that time now if it does meet the criteria to where we feel that we need to respond whether it's violent in nature or it's a danger to himself or others or gravely disabled as we would do that then that's when we would respond to a we have we have a co-response model is what we call it here in Los Angeles to where we have two uniformed uh, sworn police officers from the division respond in tandem, in conjunction with a smart response team, one of our mental evaluation units. That smart response team consists of a sworn police officer in soft clothing. They are not in uniform. They're in, I don't know if we're on camera, but they're, we're wearing the uniform today for you. And uniform. Detective Reyes, mm-hmm. it's going to be a black polo shirt with khaki pants. With the logo, with that, and the uh,
2: mental evaluation unit
3: logo. With a ho- logo. A whole lot
1: less intimidating. Yeah
3: and that's the purpose of this to be a lot in, very in, less intimidating and they respond with a civilian clinician the civilian clinician is a licensed clinician um they're able to do evaluations they are in soft clothes they are not in any type of uniform at all because we are trying to destigmatize that issue we want to get help for these individuals so if we can come in contact with them and make that encounter with them that's what we're trying to do when we respond to these incidents um, as soon as it's safe enough to where we can get our civilian partner our civilian clinician out in the field to talk with these individuals. That's what we do. Um, The uniform presence is there just to make sure the scene is safe and secure and everybody's going to be fine. And then we let our civilian partner as well as my uh, MEU officer take the lead in that investigation to where whether they will do an evaluation on them, whether they meet a uh, mental evaluation hold, whether they need to get different resources, whether the family, they can help get some family, some secondary or in ways to get that individual some help. Because ultimately the result in our process right now with our mental evaluation unit is to get help for that individual as well as their family. And oh. it's been a great, great model. And it's working wonderfully right now. It's just getting enough officers out there because we're such a big city. Right. There is times that we don't get the officers there in a timely manner because of just traffic issues and mm-hmm. concerns. But we're doing better. We're doing better. We have a chief of police and a command staff that are highly supportive of this model that's on the forefront with us. And they are giving us additional resources to help bolster and build up this, this unit. We're supposed to be doubling this unit as fast as we can get licensed clinicians hired from the County of Los Angeles because they're our partners on this. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that takes place, we're going to double the size of our units and our response teams.
1: Um, I'm curious as to how many years ago or how long ago did you start this model, this training? In general, I mean, I know the virtual is is rather new, but just the training and, you know, starting to educate your officers, educate the staff.
2: So the training, the mental health intervention training was created in 2014. And so we've been delivering the course um, 25 times a year, so every other week we put on the course. And we've trained over 5,000 um, wow. 5, wow. of our LAPD officers. And again, because we're starting off with the younger officers on probation,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, just as they're finishing their probationary period, um, it acts as a feeder. So the all the patrol the, the idea is that patrol officers will will have gone through the M training um, because we know that the younger officers are the ones that are mostly uh assigned to patrol so it acts as as a feeder for a patrol
1: not to mention that they're at the start of their career you know it's sort of teaching someone right from the beginning yeah i think that's becoming
0: standard practice uh, across law enforcement that they're implementing it when um these people are in the academy and then then later on in their career we're doing refresher courses, right? Am I correct in saying that for you guys also?
2: Well, they don't get this, they don't get the 40 hour in the academy. Oh, If if you remember the, you know, well, here in California, we have to go through certain learning domains. Um, And so the idea was that, that officers in the academy are being bombarded with so much information, penal code sections and Mm -hmm. traffic stops and all that stuff that it isn't until they really have some kind of field experience and we bring them back as an extension of their academy time. This is when they actually can, they understand it more because now they've been in the field for about 11 months. Right. They're able, they're able to grasp um, this uh, training a little bit better and kind of have their experiences to kind of help them.
0: No, that makes more sense. And and maybe I misspoke because I haven't been involved with training in so long that um, I think we do introduce it for sure, but I'm not sure if it's the 40 hour week like you're referring to.
3: Um, Yeah, they are doing that. I know becoming standard protocol. I mean, all the departments are moving into some model like this, and we're willing to help whoever needs to help develop this model to be able to share resources. Because why reinvent the wheel when we've already invented the wheel, right? And oh, that's
1: so very nice yeah. of you to offer, but that's terrific. And, and, we're and- doing
3: that. I mean, one nice thing about it with this staff, my training staff, they go nationally and provide trainings at national conferences and stuff to help let these other agencies know, this is what we're doing out here in Los Angeles. And here's how we can help you prepare your officers for this, this that we've already encountered. So it's good. It's a great resource and we're able to help anybody we can.
1: I mean, I look at this as making a tremendous difference throughout the country. Every community that's really, you know, you said you started in 2014 with this training and now there are more and more new officers coming in and, you know, increasing as such. But I just see this as just really changing, changing the the game entirely. And, uh, you know, nothing is perfect, but uh, I feel like the officers would be more comfortable knowing more and um the whole interaction changing that things don't escalate as they had many times do you see this already do you see this in just the years going on as um improvement in the situation
2: yes um i see it especially in the culture the the law enforcement culture because again when we open up the class we share our personal experiences on how mental illness has a you know a personal story about ourselves and how it's affected us and so when we when we open up the class we talk about uh we have everybody introduce themselves and then we pose that question to them or, you know tell us about any do you have any personal experiences um at home or on the job that you'd like to share right and so we try to talk about the fact that one in four, one in five, depending on where you, you get that statistic, one in five people experience a mental health crisis
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, within their lifetime. And we talk about our personal experiences. And I see the the law enforcement culture change dramatically from 21 years ago when at I joined, home. where you just do not talk about that stuff at all, never. It's like taboo, right? Yes. And I see it now with our younger officers and they open up about some wow. incredible, incredible trauma that they've been through or the loss of family members to suicide. I mean, it's just mind boggling to me to see that culture shift. It's just incredible.
1: Wow.
0: The culture is definitely changing and, and it's changing at a rapid pace.
3: Don't you? It's that's really- one thing that we were talking about here, and I was mentioning it to Detective Reyes about that is, you know, we, that's something back 20 years ago and we came on the job, you would never talk about that. You would never seek help if you were going through a troubled time in our lives as officers. And now it's expected and it's not an issue for you to reach out to somebody to seek help, to right. seek advice. And so that's really critical, I think, a lot of the times. And that's one one aspect on why we're here today is one thing that I don't think that we put out, and here's our, an issue we have, is we don't put out the good works that we're doing, right? The right. training yes. we provide, the resources, and let it know because a lot of people don't see that law enforcement, they don't understand that we get, we give this training. That we're actually constantly training our officers to improve themselves to be better, and that's why we're out here trying to push this out to the general public that, yes, we are actually improving and trying to improve our officers and the job that they can do with their encounters with our our individuals they come encounter with
0: yeah i couldn't agree more and and i will say law enforcement is very open-minded on this topic and when we created our programs which i was not involved in the original creation but we open it up to the community come on in talk to us tell us what you're looking for maybe we're not perfect none of us are perfect by so tell us what you're looking for what you need what we you know, so we can build it together. It wasn't just law enforcement is putting together a curriculum. We wanted the community involvement.
1: In in fact, when Julie and I met, which was, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, 15, I don't know, somewhere around there. Um, And I was in the position of of directing the programs at a NAMI affiliate, which is for the listeners, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. we were, it was the beginning of some of this and some of these communities were saying, we don't have time for the, it's a scheduling nightmare. We don't have time for the 40 hour training with the staff that we have. So, um, they, I was in an area where there were small communities saying we need something, but we don't have time for this. So I called Julie knowing that she was involved in this, uh, in CIT and we, for a while went to some of the communities that were in my area under our umbrella that, you know, and saying, well, how much time do you have and what are your issues? And it was, to say it better than nothing sounds negative. It was really a great, it was a great education for me, not in law, law enforcement, and just to hear what was going on in the communities and trying to, um, you know, put together some sort of plan. And Julie was great at that. I felt like, whatever they had, I think we had a minimum of at least two days, you know, 16 hours, but it was, it was really something to be able to see what was going on in these committee, in these communities and and making some sort of a plan of education. And, and then in being involved with all the families and the individuals over time, I really saw differences in some of these communities at the way the police department was working with the families and, you know if they if we were in support groups telling families encouraging them to call the police department in their area if there was an issue we felt confident telling them that because we knew these people were trained to be able to handle sit, the situation and I, and you saw the improvement
3: we I mean, do it's just we terrific. That, we see that true we see that true out here when we're doing a i think we're doing a lot better job about training those individuals, whether they're the civilians we work with or other outside law enforcement agencies. And I was going to share this because, you know, anytime you do any training with the police department, it's very expensive and very time consuming to put on a training. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have five, six full time officers, detectives that put on this training all the time. And one thing that we try to do is when I mean, size allows, we invite our smaller agencies, municipal agencies from around us to this training to help train them up mm-hmm. as well. Because I know with these smaller agencies, they don't have the staffing or the capabilities to do that. And so like this last class I did last week, there was probably a third or a quarter of the class that were from outside agencies not related to LAPD that we were help bringing them up with this this training because this training is California post certified so it goes on their record so it's trained and so it's something that we try to help assist those around us as well
0: yeah Chicago did that also we would provide the training for free all you had to do was show up for the smaller agencies around us so we had I don't know the exact number but we had a ton of different agencies that would send because they can't do it when you're you only have 40 I'm sorry 40 people in your whole police department, you can't possibly send all 40 at once. So um, it kind of bridged that gap a lot. It was really it was really nice to see. Now, I'm curious as your resources, you were talking about resources that you provide to the families, which I think is such an impactful way to really help people, because oftentimes we just go to the person who is in crisis and we forget that the whole family is falling apart and they really need the support. So what do you do in those situations? How do you handle that with the families?
2: Well, um, our unit, uh, actually, we we take takeaways from the students at the end of the MHIT class, and um, one of the officers actually came up with the suggestion, like, why do we have, you know, we have uh, pamphlets for domestic violence victims that are required for us to give. How come we don't have a pamphlet with community resources um, for for these types of calls? And so um our training unit came up with a community resource pamphlet and we actually take time to have them go through it because we know that if if they don't know what they're selling, if they're not calling those numbers and if they're not if they're not sharing these resources because they don't know what they are they're not going to be able to empower the community and they're not going to be able to help that family so after they hear about Nami, and then we go over the resource pamphlet, and we're like, "Now, now you know two people whose you know lives were impacted. This was a life-saving resource. You know, now you see it on your community resource pamphlet. Now you can actually go out and talk to the community and talk to them about hope and recovery because you've seen it and you've heard from these families, you know, firsthand. Um, and we go over, you know, uh, here we have um. We have our partners, which are Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. And so on the resource pamphlet, there's like a web, a web link where you can enter the zip code and all these mental health clinics in your two-mile radius pop up. So we're talking to officers about sharing that um, and to further reduce the stigma. but like, it'll take you about another 10 seconds of your time to actually show them on their phone, look, this is how you access it. And we talk about, like, it's so impactful when an officer in uniform is normalizing these conversations and mm-hmm. talking about these resources. And that's how you empower. And that's how you prevent them from calling 911 is to give them the resources so that they can call prior to that crisis.
1: Right. It's terrific. Yeah. And instead of just, you know, the crisis is at bay for a minute. So you hand them this thing and say, okay, goodbye. You know they would just put it on the kitchen table and end up in the garbage they wouldn't even you know it was just a crisis they're not gonna they won't necessarily even look at it so that's exactly. really great. yeah i'm very impactful
3: exactly. we try to we call it like a warm handoff mm-hmm. to where we actually work with them and we will call them if, if time allows i mean and that's why where we come into play with, with our officers with this clinician where we can spend extra time with these individuals to share those resources and to make sure that if time allows they will call that resource and hand it to them so they can talk from person to person and get those resources and just really help them out because our our goal in this is yes we come in contact with them when they're in crisis but hopefully as that crisis de-escalates and calms down the next time maybe they will call before that crisis response that it it, uh, I mean, it accelerates to the point where we have to respond and hopefully, knock on wood, maybe we don't get called again. Maybe they can get the help before they seek our help. Right.
0: And, and I just want to piggyback a little bit. In, in my experience, professionally speaking, crisis calls are not quick. And part of it, it's like a double-edged sword being in law enforcement, right? Because when you're in a major urban city and there's a lot going on, you go from call to call to call to call right and so when you have a person in crisis um it's hard to take a lot of time out not that we don't do it because oftentimes we do do it but you always know that you have these pen and we call them pending jobs right and they're lined up and they're waiting for you and you have to get them answered because someone has to answer them um but i think we've also gotten away from that too. Like we are more focused on crisis calls and we spend a lot of time. I mean, you don't walk into a crisis call and spend time 10 minutes and, you know, take a person to the hospital and call it a day. It never, It's never that simplistic. There is a lot of de escalation that we do. Um, there's a lot with, you know, supporting the family and talking to the family and talking to the person in crisis and getting them to a comfortable place. The idea that we rush in and, and grab people, that's no longer the case maybe you guys can speak to, when should people call 911? And then when the officers show up, what does that look like?
3: Well, I'll take this, I'll go first, and then Liz, you can chime in if you want on this one here. And how that looks is, you know what, I never want to tell somebody that not to call. If they mm-hmm. feel that they need to call and they feel for their safety or their loved one's safety, that they need somebody to respond, By all means, call. That's one thing we never want to discourage people. Oh, you know what? Just because you don't think it's an issue or we don't think it's an issue. Obviously, if the family is going to call us, obviously, they know there's an issue or they believe there's an issue because they know their family member, their friend better than we ever will, right? Because they know when they're not acting right or they're Mm -hmm. having some issues or concerns going on. Like I said, we have a great plan in place with our communications division. When they call 911, they can help to, you know, sort of divert the call, whether it's a law enforcement response or if it's one where we can have an unarmed or have a special unit respond to get them some help or they can call get them some resources over the phone. So there's a time and a place for that. By all means, if somebody's violent, Somebody is right. having some life threatening, life changing experience that they need us to respond. If they feel that they're not safe or they feel that their individual or their family member is not safe, by all means, yes, call us because that's where what we are here for. Right. And a lot of times people don't understand that or they, want, they don't want law enforcement to respond to these calls, but there's sometimes we have to respond. If these individuals, we just had one. Um, last Friday, where an individual was suicidal, had was armed with a gun, right? had a gun to their head. The issue with that is, is I can't put a civilian individual in harm's way with that, and I would never do that. Mm-hmm. And we were able to calm the situation down. Our officers and our clinician was able to get into a position where they could have, create a dialogue, a line of communication with this individual. And like you said, Nancy, it is, these do not take, I mean, a short amount of time. This one took a very long time. And rightfully so, we were able to have a positive outcome. We were able to gain compliance with that individual. They were able to put the weapon down and we were able to take them to a nearby facility to where they got some treatment. So that's stuff that we try to do on that one. And the sad part is there's sometimes where we don't have those positive outcomes. Right. Because yeah. we're dealing with individuals with mental crisis. And a lot of times with all of the training that we go through, all the professional, educated, formal training that we go to, we still are dealing with that individual who's going through that mental crisis at that time. Right. And sometimes, I mean, we do have, a, there's a negative outcome. And that's sad to say, but we have to prepare for those outcomes. Right. And sometimes we really... It's, it's sad for us. People think that we don't have hearts on the law enforcement side, but it's we want to save everybody. We mm-hmm. want to help change those lives. And we're not there to hurt people because ultimately you can take a you can talk to every law enforcement officer and we're there to help with our motto, protect and serve. And that's to serve our public and to help them get their needs, the resources and the help that they need. And I, I'm hoping that We can change that stigma that persona with those individuals that we come in contact with
1: well just the fact just the fact that you have trained and your whole model of training these officers from the beginning you know now start at the start of their career training trying to train everyone is such a statement of uh the heart being bigger on your side in that you really want of course don't want a negative outcome but it really says a lot how much your police department and many in this country have put into this this training that is you know changing the outcome plenty of times but but there is a force there is a there is a, a force to change and slowly i i would think that you know i see that how can it not not help tremendously right
0: Well, and I love that families have the option, right? They can call 911 and say, okay, they're acting very erratically and I don't know what to do and, and you don't have to send out someone in uniform, you know, it it makes it, it, it's a safety net for the, for the families out there.
1: And that you're so well equipped with resources that you can give resources instead of, you Mm -hmm. know, if you decide that's a, that's a, the road to take at that point, give resources over the phone is, um, is, really less intimidating for a family member to know to pick up the phone and call the police department it's not like all of a sudden chaos will ensue even you know that they will get the right advice
3: when you look at what i mean the world is revolving evolving should i say i mean our nation's evolving Mm -hmm. because you look at the new 988 suicide hotline that has just been pushed out nationwide who would have thought five ten 20 years ago, that would have happened, right? Here, we were just in meetings a couple hours ago with our contractor for the 988 phone system within our county out here. And we're, on, we were having these discussions on how we can partnership and do better at what we're doing. How can we get more calls for, to them so they can have more help and more response? And what can we do to help them? And so this is an ongoing conversation we have with our partners and I'd like to say partners on that because we don't take the lead on a lot of these things because ultimately we're there as a team to make the change to help these individuals seek the help and the comfort and get some type of resolve to what they're going through and there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of backing rehab right now from our civilian partners from the government agencies stuff that we haven't seen before like like now and so we're trying to work to Create this model to help everybody around us just to be just do a better job of what we're doing. I love that.
1: Yeah, I also just to to repeat what I mean, not to have you repeat, but just, you know, in listening to all of this, it can't it's probably it can't help but improve everything that you also um, have this platform this time for the officers to share. I didn't know that before this conversation and that is really something um i'm really i'm really kind of blown away by that i think that's um that's got to make such a difference in a lot of ways to give them the opportunity to share their own personal experiences whether it's you know through perhaps their you know work or really personal life but that just brings it to a different level of relating to what's going on having shared it having no you know trying to take the stigma to a different point
2: exactly because uh, i mean you'll be surprised a lot of officers their family members we hear about them saying oh yeah my mom had schizophrenia so as a kid i didn't know what was happening or the talk about depression or postpartum depression and it's just like you said it just takes it to the next level about destigmatizing this stuff because we're all affected and there's no, you know, there's no socioeconomic line or there's no, you know, it, it affects mm-hmm. everybody.
3: So, yeah. That's a great and point. They, uh, these officers, I always try to make a point because I mean, Detective Reyes, she's there with the trainings all the time. And I try to go to that block of instruction every week that we go, there when we put this on because to me that's, I wanna see what the officers, who we're dealing with. And it's so amazing to me that these officers are there and they have experience already dealing with mental illness or depression or like postpartum or you Mm -hmm. name it, Alzheimer's, they are Parkinson's. There's conditions that are out there that our officers get called on all the time. And it's just amazing to me when they share these experiences, how the classroom or the the training setting, you can hear a pin drop Mm -hmm. because it's affecting these individuals and well you get buy-in from the class when they do that, because you know, that you're not dealing with just an ordinary training and, and they just do an ex- excellent job into helping bring everybody together and bringing this training together for these individuals to, you know, really reach out and just better themselves.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. A hundred percent. The buy-in is really, really there. And I love what you said, Detective Reyes, that there's no one that's not affected by this. Every time I have a conversation with whomever at whatever social economic status they're at, they're they're affected at some level. So it's important to get that information out there. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you guys about is obviously being California, there are a lot of people that are drawn there because of the weather. <laughs> Although We were talking about a little bit of snow in california earlier um but on the most part you know uh, it's sad but true but you have a a large amount of homeless out there because because of the weather and so my my question is when dealing with the homeless population um we get a lot of i get a lot of questions from parents like my my child or my loved one or whomever is missing and what do i do because you know if you look at tv they're always like Oh, you have to wait 24 hours or they have to be in danger or so what is the response to you know missing and homeless
2: well it, it depends on the circumstances now if, if somebody who um, is experiencing a, a mental health crisis maybe they're on medications um they they can re- they do we do encourage them to report their loved one missing we, we will do um, a missing person report and Depending on the circumstances, um, it could become a critical missing. And so um, that information is put into the system so that if another officer comes in contact with that individual, uh, they'll know who to contact. Now, part of a missing person report here is that they have to call our mental evaluation unit, the triage desk. Our triage desk is 24 hours, um, seven days a week. And so you'll have an officer answer the line And they'll check to see if we have that person in the system because they may be missing, but they may be missing because they're they've been detained for a 5150 evaluation, right? Which is what is a
0: 5150? Yeah,
2: so a 5150 (laughs) here in California is is the equivalent to like uh, involuntary hold. Bicker Act in some states is what okay. they call it. Your involuntary your hold. So if a person is a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or gra- or gravely disabled due to their mental illness, um, uh, they can be detained for a mental health evaluation and and transported um, to a to the nearest hospital for a, for a mental health evaluation. So the officers are not the ones that are quote unquote putting the hold. We're just completing right. an application based on probable cause. To have that person evaluated and get them the the help that they need so when you, getting back to the um homeless homeless missing. situation um so i mean family members can report their loved ones missing but a lot of the times a lot of these uh individuals are not you know they're voluntarily missing mm-hmm. so even like our missing persons unit they'll find an individual maybe on our skid row which is here in los angeles like a heavily populated um homeless area where a lot of mental illness a lot of addiction issues mm-hmm. and, and homelessness and uh, they might find them and they're voluntarily missing so all we can tell those family members is like we found your we found your loved one um they're voluntarily missing and that's pretty much all we can do it's not like we can force that person to, to call their family. Right. I mean, those are heartbreaking situations. You yes. I mean, you know, imagine uh, it must be very difficult for a family member, you know, to have a child or a loved one out there, you know, with a mental illness and they, they, they don't have insight into their illness and they're out there on the streets. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's heartbreaking. We hear it from our NAMI. Partners. I was
1: just going to say at that point, I guess what you, the only thing you could offer is, advice to the family for their own support to build themselves a certain amount of strength through NAMI or other organizations like that. And um, that sometimes can change the situation for the better too. Once they get the the the, uh, right words to say or the the strength and you know, how to get through themselves, they can really have a end up having a conversation and reaching out and maybe making a difference this time to that particular person.
0: Right. But you don't have to wait 24 hours to call 911 and report someone missing. Because I see that a lot. And I, I try to discredit that I'm like, uh, that came from TV. I don't know where that came from. But especially if they have mental health issues, which is considered a medical issue, you know, and so how do you define high risk missing as opposed to a regular.
3: missing? So you know, we have some You may have some department policies in place. I mean, it could be based on age. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be a minor, somebody (laughs) under the age of 16, which we would classify as high risk just due to their age. We could have um, somebody with a mental condition or a medical condition that would constitute that be high risk. It could be somebody on the latter spectrum of the age where as over a certain age, over 60 or 65, that could be an individual that could be meet their criteria for that. Um, they have uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, some of those conditions and those which we ask, and we're trying to make a bigger push in our training right now to provide extra resources for the officers that come in contact with the, I'm not going to say, I don't want to say frequent flyers, but for example, if somebody with dementia, who's a wanderer, Mm -hmm. we're providing some different resources, whether they are wristbands or tracking devices to help, these individuals and help the family for that. So there's stuff that we're partnering with the Alzheimer's Association and the County of Los Angeles to get some of these resources to help individuals with their family members. Um, The big question I will tell anybody, if they have a loved one that's gone missing, call your nearest police station, explain the situation to them, what's going on, and we can answer the questions for them, whether it is, we call it in Los Angeles, a critical missing, or just a missing, but we can actually help provide some resources to them and help show them if we need to, they need to follow up where their last locations were, their local hangouts were, whether they ditch school. We have a lot of truants, a lot of individuals who run away from school. Mm -hmm. So we have stuff that we work with the families on, because a lot of it is, yes, they might run away, but it might be a cry for help for these individuals. So we try provide them some resources that when we find these individuals okay what do we need to do to help prevent this from happening in the future
0: Wow that is some great information yeah boy
3: people wouldn't know
1: otherwise
0: yeah Um, before we wrap up here I just want to say I think we've talked about this um, in our prior podcasts my best advice to families is the more information the better you know law enforcement doesn't know anything about your family, your home, your family dynamics, your relationships, we mm-hmm. don't know anything, we get very limited information. So the more you can provide is is better. Yeah, I,
1: have a, I have a question, I was going to actually ask something about this. And this is to all of you, all three of you, police enforcement officers, police enforcement professionals. Um, if we used to say in our support groups, and I think they still do, I'm, I'm no longer a facilitator, that If in your community, if you have someone in your house that is, um, really struggling and has had violent behavior and you're just trying to, um, you know, keep things at bay, but you know, they really can escalate in the house and that you may indeed have to call the police. Is it, um, encouraged to call ahead of time and say, you know, before the crisis hits, I have someone in my house who has, you know, my son or my daughter or my father, uh, has schizophrenia and, um, at times we've really, you know, if they don't take their medication, we really have a scary situation and maybe calling, um, this is my name and address and, and giving you a heads up. Does that help? Is there some sort of way that you put that into some computer system or, um, is that a help or a hindrance for families to be encouraged to call ahead of time? Well,
2: um, you know, we actually have, a. Uh, a procedure in place um for locations what's called a special location Uh, now if the family member is asking for that information to be relayed to an officer um there is a, a procedure in place where they can do that however um you know that is your your family member's uh medical condition right and unless there's something more like we wouldn't do that for like a cardiac patient or a diabetic Mm -hmm. right we wouldn't put uh that location as a special location um sharing their their medical condition unless there was some other reason maybe for safety reasons um maybe this person uh you know they're they've had like a Use of force with police every time they interact, or there's some, something Violent more. correct? Right. Yeah, they, exactly. If there's like s- some uh, violence that is expected during the law enforcement encounter, then maybe that would be a reason to do that. But but just because you know being mentally ill is not a crime, and so we want to avoid trying to put. Yeah, like,
1: I was I was really thinking back though. I I agree 100% with what what you're saying, but what I'm, what I'm referring to more specifically and thinking back to are people that were in, in the support groups that were in their late seventies, eighties maybe married for many, many years to this person who, uh, has always had bipolar disorder, but now dementia is setting in. And they suddenly have these violence, violent, you know, tendencies that are, um, you know, that are coming spontaneously when you don't know and these the people that are living with them are saying this is really scary and we're saying you should call the police they're trained there are trained cit officers ask for that and they were trying to plan ahead of time and get all the you know sort of support they could have and those were the people we were you know where it was preventative um not you can't prevent violence but preventing uh, you know, just kind of stepping, proactive. S- proactive and stepping across the one step of explaining your story. If they put the person's name in the computer and the address, they'd say, okay, you know, Mr. Jones, uh, the wife called and said, he has dementia and bipolar disorder. And this happens. That's what I was really asking about. Like a registry. Yeah. Of, of a knowing, registry. She's talking. Okay.
3: About. I didn't know the term, but that would be a good one. So one thing, what we're blessed with out here in Los Angeles is each uh, geographical division, we have like community relation officers. We call them senior lead officers. So those are ones that are, they're assigned to each division. There are certain geographical area within the division. And that's a question that we can pose to them out here in Los Angeles, where I would tell the individual, let's call your senior lead officer. They can meet with the family. And if it meets that criteria where we want to make it a special location or add that to the comments of that or tie it to that address and not uh, violate any of the HIPAA violations or medical right. violations, right? That, that's something we can do because, and ultimately that would be great help for us knowing if we get a call at that location that we know if that's what John it is really is a, uh, I mean, he has dementia, he frequent, he's a wanderer away, mm-hmm. and to help us out, absolutely, that's a key okay. for us. So there to help. I mean, and I don't know about other agencies, if they have the flexibility of doing that. But one thing about it too, is if the family is reaching out, then they need to make sure they have a safety plan in place for their household too with this. And that's why we can help them create that safety hold, that safety net to help them out to create some type of plan and just make them aware of what, if we come, here's what we're going to be asking. So they know the, questions and the information that we'll be needing if we get called to their residence
1: yeah thank you that answered it thank you yeah um
0: i will say this so they're they're a larger department we're a larger department in smaller agencies it's probably easier to go to the local station and or whatever and have a conversation like this is my loved one if you get a call at my house you know because you get to know your your community your your community and the officers within your community i can tell you firsthand that a friend of mine her son was a runner he was always running and the um officer she was on chrisa hickey and her husband
1: oh
2: right
0: yeah and so the um officer that would respond to the house got to know her son really well and in fact he got to know him they had such a great relationship that when he ran away he actually came in when he was off duty to go get him and de-escalate him and bring him back home so it's a little easier in smaller communities than it is in bigger communities because you know the transition is so crazy but um yeah it's it's definitely i think that's what you're going for too right Mm -hmm,
1: exactly yeah took me a little bit to get there
3: (laughs) i mean in those offices that i told you about with our department those are the community relation officers to get to know your community mm-hmm. because they're there, they're assigned a certain specific area, and that's what their focus is, is to right. get to know those community members on a I on a personal level. And that's what's crucial with us in our department is getting to know those relationships, getting to know those stakeholders, getting to know those mm-hmm. community members because like we said, if somebody goes missing, they can, they rally their community safety partnerships out there, their neighborhood watch groups. And they say Johnny's missing and they rally, they start a community and they start working their community outreach groups and they're our partners. So they help us look and we come in and look and we really have a great, great job and great responsibility and a great understanding of what it takes to make this work with yeah. our community members.
0: boy that's great great
1: advice great plan of action too that's terrific
0: boy we cannot thank you guys enough for coming on and and giving us this vital information for families i'm sure it will clear up a lot of things for them and
1: thank you so much for your valuable time this was really interesting and helpful on on in many in many ways on many levels
0: and thank you guys for what you're doing on a continuous daily basis i know it's not easy
3: I know with us, I mean, if I say just thank you for letting us come on your show today. This is oh. something that we take very serious and we wanna share this. It's a national, I mean, it's a national issue that we're talking about with mental health and law mm-hmm. enforcement. Yes. And it's something that we cannot do without members of like you, with those individuals who are out there to get the word out that yes, we are out there to help individuals. We are trying our best to help to resolve this peacefully Sometimes that doesn't happen that way, but we are out there training our into officers. We are out there working with them on a daily basis, making sure that they have the best resources, the best communication skills, and the best technology to help those individuals in their crisis and their time of need. And so we do appreciate allowing us to come on the show to share just a snapshot of the Los Angeles Police Department and what we can do for the city around us.
0: Well, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lieutenant. We appreciate it. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behind our door at That's behind our door at And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so
1: thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis, struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.